On this episode of AvTalk, we get an update on the Aeroflot 1492 accident. Southwest makes a deal with their mechanics, while American goes to court with theirs. And Chris Sloan from Airways Magazine stops by to chat about his recent trip to Russia to fly on vintage Soviet aircraft. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian, how are you? Hello Jason, I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. The weather's very nice finally. I think we're in that one week period between uh, winter and summer that they used to call spring but is now just like a, a week. So it's very nice. Yeah, it's it's the one week you you know the, one of the two weeks a year between you know what used to be summer and, and and winter, where you get to open your windows and and enjoy everything before it gets unbearably hot and humid. Have you been outside recently? They don't let me outside. No, probably a good uh, idea. I I just get reports usually via email that tell me oh it is nice outside and then I you know, okay that's good to know if you say so. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of kind of you know opening windows and things, you, you've had some issues over the past couple of weeks. Are, are, are things less aquatic in your apartment these yeah, days? The, the leak that was from the apartment above mine is all all stopped and patched up, and I've decided rather than dealing with it, I'm just going to move. That I feel like that, to be perfectly honest, is a wonderfully reasonable solution to the problem. Yeah, that, that's very New York City, I guess. Uh, someone else's problem in a month, I don't want to deal with it, so I'm just going to find a new crappy apartment. There you go. Yeah. And the whole game begins again. What could go wrong? Absolutely nothing. Nope. That's exactly what could happen. So it's been, we had our, our special episode last week where we, we sat down with John Ostar and, and spoke at length about the 737 MAX and what's happened since March and, and kind of where we're going. Uh, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to do so. John brought a lot of great insight to the conversation as he always does. And, and so if you're looking for where the MAX program is now and what Boeing is doing to to kind of rebuild trust with pilots, with airlines, but also with, I, I think, the general flying public, that's a good place to start. And we'll link to the, that uh, special episode in the show notes. This episode, we're looking at uh, just a regular couple weeks, it seems like, for the first time Back in, in a normal. long time. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, some things have happened, some labor relations issues. We've got some financial maneuvers and we've got a few updates on some investigations. And so I guess we'll start with that. The Russian Interstate Aviation Committee concluded their preliminary analysis of the flight data recorders from uh, Aeroflot Flight 1492, which was the superjet that suffered a. Uh, a very hard landing, I think is still an understatement, in, in Moscow the beginning of May. And so they've done that and released some some preliminary findings. Since our last episode, a video came out that showed the full landing sequence of the aircraft, such as it was. And, and Jason, I know you took a look at that video and it, it there were at least, I think, three bounces yeah, uh, or, or so. touchdowns and the regaining of altitude. So the first few videos we saw as the incident had really been unfolding, it really only showed a piece of the story that the video we saw started with the aircraft on fire and assumptions had been made that the aircraft was on fire and engulfed as it was landing. 
but this extended video showed that the aircraft was actually not engulfed in fire, not in fire at all. And it was on what looked like a stabilized approach uh, until they kind of touched down and flared a little bit, but regained altitude, bounced, bounced again. And then I think the third bounce, they gained quite a bit of altitude, 30, 40, 50 feet. I'm not sure exactly because it's not the best quality video. But then that last time they came down and they came down real hard. The, ga the gear collapsed uh, and the rest is uh, history there, unfortunately. But at least we do have full video that shows what happened. And we now know that the aircraft was not on fire on approach. Yeah, and and the final impact. So it it, it touched down twice before the the third and final impact, and that was a five G impact. So quite the hard the hard landing, and that's what you know damaged the aircraft and and caused the the fuel spill and subsequent fire. So they're they're still looking into why all of those things occurred, but they they've got a a, a good bit of data that they're working with now. Yeah, so we're still working off the initial report that the aircraft was struck by lightning, but that would be very, very peculiar for a, a lightning strike, which happens fairly routinely to all aircraft, I think, get struck by lightning at least once a year on average. So they'll be looking to see what happened here. Why would a lightning strike cause this aircraft to almost become uncontrollable in some fashion or another. But that, uh, as we always say, that's for the investigators to figure out and report back eventually. Eventually. And, and so hopefully we'll have, have something in the, in the coming months as far as a, a full report. But these things always take time. Yep. We'll be waiting. <laughs> Not much else to do. In a previous episode, we had discussed... Southwest Airlines issues with their maintenance team and taking additional time to complete tasks and finding more issues than might be warranted with particular craft, keeping them on the ground longer. And that was becoming a, a point of contention where they, the management and the, the union were, were trading back and forth, trading kind of comments and, and things back and forth. But Southwest has reached an agreement with their mechanics just in time for American Airlines to sue their mechanics. Yeah, there's a bit of uh, bit of that going around, I guess. So American, I think, actually filed uh, an injunction yesterday. I, I didn't take a close look at it, but I think it was a uh, an injunction basically listing all the details of why American thinks they're taking this illegal work action. Um, they've actually, uh, they meaning American, has suspended the overhaul or maybe not the overhaul, the refurbishment of their 737s, the Oasis project, which goes from I think 160 to 172 seats on board. And I mean, that that's good in its own right, not good for the airline, but they've completely suspended that until the end of 2020, in part because of uh, the 7.3 MAX grounding has stretched their fleet to the limit, but also the uh, mechanics just aren't available to get the work done. Yeah, so so that'll be interesting to see how how that plays out both both in in the courts and then in their negotiations. But something to keep in mind if if you're looking at flying American, I guess, and also if you're flying Southwest. So that, that's good news on that part. Yep. We head north to Canada, where there's some consolidation and some kind of shifting of of ownership around. I guess we'll we'll start with the the easiest to understand one with. Um, with Onyx Partners uh, taking WestJet private, 
So that'll be interesting to to see what happens there, and especially what happens with Swoop. Yeah, the WestJet one is particularly interesting since they have these growing ties with Delta. They're looking to uh, go up market a little bit with WestJet Mainline, I guess you could say now, by installing a real business class. They have the 787s for transatlantic service with their really nice new cabins. And I think this was Seth Miller said this on Twitter a couple days ago, that it's a lot easier to do all this upmarket stuff and and spend a lot of money to refurbish your product if you don't have to uh, do quarterly reports and make your numbers public. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but but that's something that we've talked about, I think, before. Not necessarily even making the numbers public, but you know how passenger experience might not be best served when all you're doing is worrying about, you know, what are the quarterly numbers going to say? Right. And and so can, you know, can they do this and, and turn it into, you know, ch- kind of change the, the perception? And I think they've done a, a pretty decent job, you know, as things go with the rollout of the 787, especially, you know, showing that they're they're serious about becoming, or at least having a premium option. Right. So they are now a, a serious transatlantic competitor as opposed to uh, when they had a couple dinky old 767s with a lackluster product, which were, I guess were a, a stopgap measure. But it will be quite interesting to see what WestJet is able to do. They've got a very different style of doing in, introducing transatlantic service than, let's say, JetBlue, which is also a North American low-cost carrier that wants to do transatlantic service, while WestJet is going full-on premium product on a wide body, JetBlue will be doing uh, a tweaked version of their narrow body product. So very different styles here. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how those two styles develop. And and I think WestJet, were they using their Max transatlantic from the east coast of canada i think for like a hot minute yeah and and then well that's on hold at the moment so uh but it'll be interesting to see kind of how how that develops and what onyx does the other and i would say more interesting from a, a market development perspective is that air canada wants to buy air transat yes so there is not much competition in Canada. So this one is going to receive an inordinate amount of scrutiny, I think, because Air Transit right now is a major player in the fact that they do fly in a good number of transatlantic routes. They fly a very good number of uh, Caribbean routes and down to Florida. So Air Canada snatching up Air Transit is going to be a big deal and kind of turn, for all intents and purposes, the Canadian aerospace seen into really a, a duopoly, I think. Yeah, I mean, as far as full service carriers go, especially. And 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 with I don't I don't want to say swoop, the low cost WestJet's low cost care or ultra low cost carrier, I guess, kind of their future in in question or or at least how they address that as they go private, you're left with basically what, Air Canada Rouge? Yeah. Which um, is just Air Canada. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's one of those things that the the market is kind of up for grabs, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, it, does somebody else try something in Canada? It's possible. It's been done before, never really successfully. So what happens now? Yeah, there have been plenty of attempts in the recent past, but nothing seems to work in Canada. So it's uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether or not. Air Canada is 
whether the regulators allow the purchase to go forward or if there's some sort of you know divestment required or, or, or something like that. But if it does go forward, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the Transat fleet because you've got A310s on the way out, which one of the last carriers operating a, a good chunk of A310s for passenger configuration. And then uh, you've got A321 Neos on their way in. Yeah, they have the A321 Neo LR. I think their first was put into service last week, I believe, which has yeah, a, a very nice recently. product. Yeah. But they also have these A330s in this super rare, dense configuration of 333, which is very much not uh, a premium product. That's very squishy. I would not want to be on that. But very squishy. Right now, I like yeah. That. Right now, Air Canada is actually leasing those aircraft due to the max max grounding. So it, it is weird. Maybe they just integrate it into Rouge. I'm not quite sure. We'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. But we'll stay in Canada to congratulate Airbus and Bombardier, I should say, on Airbus's twelve thousandth aircraft delivery. And what was it? It was an A two twenty. Hmm. But I bet it said C-Series on the door. I mean, it, it probably said a lot of things on the door. So who'd it go to? I think Delta? Delta, yep. November 113 Dairy Queen. Dairy that's Queen. The NATO, that's the NATO official name, right? Yeah, D and, D and Q are definitely Dairy <laughs> and Queen. N113 Delta Quebec is the registration of the 12,000th aircraft delivered by Airbus. So I don't know what the 11,000th one was. I know the 10,000th was a A350 for Singapore, but I have no idea what the 11,000th aircraft was. But they're they're churning them out quickly. Yep. And they're getting that mobile plant ready for the A220. I, I think that's later this year or next year. I'm not quite sure. But right now they are still made up in Canada, but they'll eventually be making their way down south. Yeah. So it's a, a lot of stuff going on. And, and Airbus announced I think today, their 50th anniversary is this year. So later this summer, they're going to have a special flight of all of their commercial aircraft uh, together. Now, someone asked uh, us earlier today, will it be all currently available? Airbus aircraft are all historic. They, they have them all still. I mean, you could, I'm sure they could find an A318 somewhere to put in that. If it were me and Airbus hasn't called me yet, I would be willing to offer them this advice. If it were me, I would get all of them. Yes. So everything A3, 18, 19, 20, 21. Do you include the Neos as a, a no, no, spin-off? No, no, no. I'm talking everything. I, I'm saying you know anything that you've got, send it up there. A300s, A310s. Yeah, of course, everything. You know, just everything. You know, the 18s, 19s. You know, if, if you want to do Neo or C, I don't. Are there any A3, 4200s lying around somewhere? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of them lying around somewhere. In, in, like, I don't in know if... airworthy condition. Yeah, I mean, aren't there a few that still have? I mean, they're they're probably you know VVIP configuration, but there there's still some flying around. I don't know. Last one I know of was Royal Jordanian flew them to JFK until a couple of years ago, until their seven eights came. But yeah, and Chicago. Yeah, I'm not as aware well. of in any you used to be able to hear it yeah, for 900 miles. I'm not aware of any 34200s in the entire global schedule for at least commercial aircraft. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm sure there's a couple that are still in VVIP configuration. I think the Saudi government may have one. Hmm. If only we knew a website where we could track such 
the, we'll have to look that up. But uh, what I'm saying is we can do all of them or should do all of them. But I'm not Airbus and and so I will leave that to them. Needless to say, I'm excited about seeing seeing Matt both tracking it but also seeing pictures from it because yes, I'm sure it'll very be very much uh, so. I'm sure it'll be very good. You'll be shocked to know that I put an A342 filter on uh, the site right now and none are appearing. None are appearing Shocking. because there's uh, yeah probably probably not too many flying around. Shall we take a quick break and then come back and chat with Chris Sloan, who joined you at the TWA hotel opening? So we're going to get not a hotel review necessarily from the two of you, but but a, a discussion about how avgeeky it is and some of the things that they're doing right and some of the things that they might want to work on a little bit more. But I think more interestingly, we're going to talk with Chris about his recent trip to Russia and his flying on some unusual and rare aircraft that you really have to, to travel to Russia to, to fly on. So we'll be back in just a moment and with Chris Lowe. Welcome back, and we are joined by Chris Sloan, the managing editor of Airways Magazine, a contributor to multiple sites around the world, international man of mystery, and you can find him on Twitter at Archive. Chris Sloan, welcome to the program. Privets, comrades. Greetings, Chris. How are you? I'm Ochin Karashol. That's all the Russian I know. We've brought you on today for a singular reason and then by chance tacked on a secondary one. So I, I think we should talk about you and Jason both visited the opening of the TWA hotel at JFK. So I want to talk about that. And then we're going to get to the meat of things where you have recently been sojourned to Russia to fly on a, a host of aircraft that not many folks get to fly on with, with any regularity. So we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But Jason and Chris, you both enjoyed or maybe didn't the opening of the TWA hotel. And I would love to hear your thoughts on, on what it is and, and perhaps what it could be. Oh, I have thoughts. And I know Chris has thoughts as well. And my thoughts are, is not ready yet. It should not have been open. It was very much as bad as soft as opening as, as you could possibly have. Things were not ready. Thankfully, my room was, was gorgeous and ready. But the rest of the place was uh, construction was still going on. Operations were kind of a mess. And I know, Chris, you had uh, had some feelings about that, didn't you? Yeah, I would say it was not quite ready for mainline. Or prime time. It was definitely a, a soft as being kind, but it is a fantastic curated avgeek experience. Just the hotel part is a little bit went mechanical. Right. So the, the hotel itself is completely TWA themed as such. It is in the TWA Flight Center at JFK, the historical building. So the lobby, the restaurant, bars, uh, all of that is located in the old TWA building at JFK, while the actual hotel rooms are in two new towers on either side of it. And while my experience with the room itself was great, the, the room was ready, furnished, everything was great. Others were not so lucky, but they really, really went all out with the TWA amenities and memorabilia and markings and logos and everything. And, and Chris, I know collecting stuff, airline stuff is your thing. Where did this register on, on your AvGeek scale? I thought it was 
just absolutely fantastic. I mean, as when I first saw you and you get off the elevator and they've got Jack Fry's desk or even though it's the, I guess, Howard, Bill does Howard Hughes. I was like, right there, you had your Instagram moment down to the fake bourbon and, you know, the one trip glow, which I kind of not the right airline, but it was, it was just, I don't think I've ever seen a better curated exhibition of, of av geek material at a, at a museum. It was phenomenal. Yeah. And it was great. And it's repeated in every room. I, there were, uh, TWA glasses and coasters, amenity kits, the bath mat had the TWA logo on it. So really, if you're at all a TWA fan or, or historical buff about TWA, you'll want to stay there a night. If you happen to be a weary traveler passing through JFK, it is nice to finally have an on-airport hotel once again at JFK that isn't a rundown dump. Hopefully, their their rates will be low enough or, or fair enough that they will have decent occupancy because I hope they make it. It's quite nice. Yeah, I mean, by the way, I think the irony of this whole place was, you know, and, and to, to give them credit, I mean, they have real great enthusiasm and great energy and, you know, give this a couple of weeks. I think this will be they'll iron that out. It's uh, ironic that they couldn't get the basic hotel stuff out right. But, you know, it's going to be wonderful to check out soon. But, you know, ironically, you know, famously, when the Saarinen Terminal was built and opened in 1962, it was designed in the mid 50s. And TWA was famous for being behind in the jet age, like Howard Hughes did not believe in jets. He was, a you know, developed the constellation. So that the terminal was never really efficient. And it was overwhelmed and a mess and operations were a mess from the beginning. So the fact is, is they kind of repeated history. You know, it took a little while for the original building and that's, you know, and you can, you can see in the layout. So the fact that they kind of repeated history and opening night of the hotel was a little bit of a, went a little bit sideways. It's, I think there was kind of a poetic irony there. Yeah. I would definitely stay again if I had an early morning flight and I didn't want to take a ride all the way out from Brooklyn out there. But if you, like I said, if you have any interest in airline history and have a, a few bucks to spend, I would definitely head out there for a night or at least um, go up to the rooftop deck um, when it when it's finished because it still wasn't ready. The Connie is there in the, I guess, the backyard, which honestly I wasn't all that in love with. I felt like the inside was kind of depressing, but it's Cool to see from the yeah. outside. I thought the runway lights, I want that in my driveway. That was cool. Yeah. That was cool. Your, your Tesla cool. doesn't need lights. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't. But I was going to say, one thing I, I did think that it was also uh, brilliant is the kind of the hidden area. If you go down to the first floor where all the conference areas are, that collection of memorabilia was astounding. And, he, and the cool thing about this place is even if you're not an airline geek and you actually want to bring like a spouse or a friend, if you're just into the Mad Men mid-century era, you're still going to eat it up just as well. So I just think it's going to be fantastic and certainly better than the uh, Crown Plaza in uh, Queens. Yeah, I have a feeling many uh, bar mitzvahs are going to be held in the uh, convention center area down there. Ian, are you going to be having uh, three bar mitzvahs there? It, oh, wait, you're not part of the tribe. No, well, it's, you know, it's, I, I think, I think it's only fair to, to do it anyway. So we'll see, we'll see how we end up with it. Any but, excuse. But it, it, a triplet of bar mitzvahs, that'd be kind of cool. Did I understand correctly that the rooftop wasn't, I mean, wasn't the whole thing billed as, you know, come see the rooftop and then it, it wasn't open? Yeah. And even on their website, they say, yes, the rooftop deck is open and it was very much not open. There were, the walls weren't complete. There were wires hanging out the ceiling. They wouldn't even let us up there to take a picture. So it was most certainly not done. And like the rooftop bar of the air, June, it is not something I was allowed to take part in. Well, I, I really hope this doesn't end up like June. And 
I hope so too. They, they actually get off the ground, but it, it sounds like they just did things too early. Yeah, I mean it, it, they needed from everything rumor, I've heard. I mean, we heard this rumor. I don't know if it's true, but because the tick, the reservations went on sale on what Valentine's Day, and they somehow we had heard again. Don't know if it's true, but that they timed it because they had a celebrity commitment. I mean, they filmed Catch Me If You Can there, so we were like, "Is that mean was it Leo DiCaprio or was John Travolta? Was somebody? There was some reason they were hitting that date." Did you hear about that, Jason? I did. But, and, and, and the people took a Originally, I, I heard that the hotel was supposed to open on Memorial Day weekend, which is this coming week, and that they pushed it up a couple weeks to meet a, a schedule, but apparently it doesn't matter. It, it just wasn't ready. But by the time you listen to this podcast and book a stay, I'm sure everything will be worked out. Yeah, I got to tell you the craziest story. One story I heard is uh, you know a number of uh, airline crew people I know came in, and they were like, oh known crew member, we're going to have to, you know, they were like walking back out to go get through security to go eat it back in the terminals or the Admiral clubs. But a lot of them were with their spouses, like three pilots I know. And they were like booking tickets just to go through security and then canceling them just so they could go eat. Heard like that story three times. But but people who did eat at the restaurant, who did get the reservation said it was pretty great. Yeah, I did eat there. So, it, was, it was expensive, but it was good. A very limited menu, which again, might only be because of the, the soft opening, but it was good. But I, I don't think capacity will be an issue on a normal day. But unfortunately, the restaurant's not 24 hours. They don't have room service. So if they're closed and you need food, slim pickings at JFK. Yeah, there weren't any vending machines. Thankfully, the mini bar is actually not all that expensive in the room. Oh, you're right. The mini bar was awesome. Yeah, that was probably the best part. That was. I'm, I'm gonna use... I think they're going to send you a bill for the amenity kit now. <laughs> you just outed yourself. So let's go from JFK to I don't even know where, Chris. So tell us, what did you do? Why were you there? And, and what did you get to fly on? Well, I guess why I was there is because uh, I got off my meds and some crazy got some bug at my, my keister to want to go. You know, I mean, a lot of us uh, in this world, uh, the, the, the Abge community have you know, done the classic Air Choreo North Korea trip. And that's off limits, as we know, for, Amer uh, for Americans and probably not a great idea to be going over there anyway. So there's been a number of attempts to and there, you know, to put a Russian trip together that kind of substitute a lot of that equipment because some of the airplanes you fly at Air Corio, you know, absolutely, you can't even really fly in Russia. So the draw here was that they found a lot of those, they, they booked uh, some of those planes, in particular um, the Aleutian 18 and the Aleutian 62, uh, plus a smattering of, of yak of yaks here and there. So this was a really cool group uh, put together by Lutz Schoenfeld, who actually used to work for Interflug in Berlin. And it was mainly Germans and some Swiss and then th three intrepid Americans, which was me, Cody Diamond, Delta's youngest pilot, and Bernie Layton, who, who was amazing on a trip like this. So yeah, it was just an opportunity to go fly some Russian delicacies and collude with uh, vodka and caviar. That so, does sound pretty great. I mean, it you know, if if you're looking for that sort of thing, yeah, I I don't see where you can really go wrong here. So, so if I'm understanding correctly, this was like a like a special aviation only tour, and so you got to to fly some some really interesting things. But there were some kinks along the way, if I understand correctly. Oh yeah, I mean. There was tons of kinks, but that's what, you know, that's what makes it, that's what made it fun. About half of the flights we did were flights we booked on our own to obscure places. So that was the Yak-40, the Sequoia SSJ. Uh, we did those kind of on our own. But what was really unique, the kink uh, was, you know, and the Yak, and the Tupolev 134 was always planned. And that was a unique plane because that's flown by Cosmos Air, which is basically shuttles, uh, 
people to and from, uh, you know, the space program. So that was really cool. And uh, they actually today or yesterday just retired the last scheduled Tupelo 134. But the, the 62, you know, which is, if people don't know, that's the, you know, flagship long haul aircraft from the 60s. It looks like a VC-10, four engines on the rear. And the Aleutian 18, those are impossible. I mean, there's not any of them operating in scheduled service. So we were supposed to fly that. They'd actually done a deal with the military. So we were going to be flying military transports. And the Aleutian 18, that's what brought Khrushchev over for the first time to America. That's like a massive four-engine, long-haul piston airplane from like the, the late 50s. So that is that was an, a holy grail. These were the two holy grails of long-haul Soviet travel. But the military, for reasons we don't still know, we believe it's related to the May Day Parade, canceled us on the day before. So they had to scramble and they got us a Yak-42, which was you know, maybe not quite as cool, but still was pretty, pretty out there and fascinating. All three planes were fascinating. I mean, I can talk about them, but it was, it was just a trip. It was awesome. So what was, what was the best part of the whole trip? The best part of the whole trip? God, that's a great question. I don't know. I've never seen the Yak 40 was like stepping into back in the, into the 1960s. And it's such a, you know, it's a three engined plane about the size of a CRJ that was still infinitely more comfortable. And, you know, when you board the aircraft, you board through the rear air stairs. There's no luggage holds. So you actually bring your bags on and they, there's a baggage hold behind the passenger cabins. And they basically say, this is le- stuff you no need uh, section, loosely translated. They sometimes do a uh, safety briefing. Some flights they didn't. I thought that was interesting. And uh, the toilet, it's the first time I've ever used a laboratory in an airplane and gotten splinters because it was made out of wood. It looked (laughs) worse than the latrines at Calcutta. There's no overhead bins. There's just hat racks. And I mean, this plane was the flight attendant's call button said stewardess. The windows were like Dreamliner technology. They were blue shades, except uh, they manually pull them down. But there's no full shades there. The seats don't recline backwards, but they recline 100 percent flat forwards of you. So if somebody's not sitting in them, you can put the seat in front of you all the way down and put your feet up and have a conversation. And these planes were so are so rare that even when we showed up in obscure airports, people, enthusiasts would, would hear about them and they would be tracking Flight Radar 24 in Russia. And you'd see them, everybody on their phones taking photos in different places we landed. And that was like, wow. So you guys are uh, very popular over there. <laughs> so that was, it was, it was really, I mean, it's just, fascinating. The Yak-40 was fascinating. The Tupolev 134, the fact that the airplane at times has been used for military use. So a plane that's the Tupolev 134 is like the size of a DC-910 series 10, but it has a navigation station, but that's located in the nose of the plane. So the radome is glass. So there's a navigator laying there on his stomach. The position has to be filled and, you know, navigating. I mean, that's obviously the best seat in the house. That's still how that plane, that particular model, the TU-134 I think ours was a Model A. That was a total trip. So it's just like, and you know, the Yak 40, I mean, it, it doesn't even have, it, you're like, when's the last time you flew on an hour flight on a jet where you don't go above like 7,000 feet? And it's like, as it turns out, the plane doesn't have oxygen masks. So <laughs> can't even they don't pressurize fly. then? No. So you get a, that's by the way, that's why they can fly them forever. But our Yak was built in like 1976. So you get, you know, you're guaranteed a good view. God help you if you're flying through a mean Russian winter. And another thing that's fascinating is even how these Yaks, how they take off, they do like power stalls. So they, they literally throttle the engines full and they keep the brakes on for like 10 seconds. And you've got three engines on a 
I mean, this is like a 30 passenger aircraft and, and they're only putting out like 4,000 pounds of thrust a piece or three, yeah, three or 4,000 pounds a piece, I think, or something like that. Or maybe I'm wrong, 9,000 pounds, but they, to see an airplane go into full 100% maximum takeoff power and just them standing on the brakes. And then when they release it, it's like, it's a rotation. Like you've never felt it was crazy. So it was just, everything is non-traditional. I'm like, I'm bizarre to go on a commercial flight where they don't do a safety briefing. And then flying Aeroflot, I have to say uh, the other weird experience is flying Aeroflot. I mean, Aeroflot is Delta. I mean, it is so harmonized, like down to the way the cabin looked and the service levels. And the, it was excellent, actually. So yeah, just it's an entirely different, in so many ways, it's just an entirely uh, bizarre experience. And I guess the only plane I didn't mention was the, the Act 42, which is really a trip. By the way, you guys can shut me up if you want. Edit that out. But uh, the Act 42 was such an unexpected, like we were all kind of like, oh, this is a bummer. They're just going to give us this kind of, you know, the Act 42 is like a 70, 80 passenger plane. Again, like in a, their early 80s ERJ, it was actually unique. It was actually grounded for two years for safety issues where the whole model was grounded. But this was the first plane in Russia that had tie bypass turbofans and had ever been ex exported successfully to non-Eastern countries. And the first class cabin, which we booked partially, had flat screen plasmas. It had, it looked like an oligarch or czar's private jet cabin. They had cameras on this 40-year-old airplane on the fuselage. It was like flying Emirates. You could see everything, multiple camera shots. I thought was, that was like bizarre. And then as soon as you walk past the curtain, it immediately becomes, you know, it becomes uh, General Secretary Communist Party 1970s with the windows still stained by nicotine and, and, and bizarre. I mean, it was just like a tale of two worlds on this airplane. So I think we were all just kind of surprised, but the tour operators were just so into it and the pilots and the crews were into it. And everywhere we'd stop, they'd let us crawl over the airplane, take as many photos on the ramps. So it was a wonderful group of people and they're going to do another one here in August. And I can't recommend it highly enough. And they're adding MI2 helicopters and Ann, Anatov 26s and all sorts of cool stuff. So I recommend it to anybody. And Russia is such an inexpensive place once you get there. It's a great deal and it's really some great people. Is it awesome? That, that's what I was going to ask awesome you about, experience. Chris. You said you booked some of these flights on your own. And I was just wondering, what does what a ticket cost for, for one of these flights? Uh, you mean like the ones we booked on our yeah, own? Yeah, like the intra, not like getting there or anything like that, but just like in the in you know intra-Russia flights. Well, I mean, Aeroflot, if you're flying a first first tier airline like S7 or Aeroflot, you know, it's like an hour flight on St. Petersburg to St. Petersburg. You know, that's fairly standard. It was like, I think it was like 250 US. But when we flew the Yak, we, that was a really obscure airline. I think that ticket was the Yak 40. It was only about $40 US. What? For real? Yeah. And we were just regular passengers. So, you know, this plane was part of the old Aeroflots. It was an old Aeroflot baby, baby flot. So yeah, it was like 40 bucks. Now we landed in an airport that had, by the way, interestingly enough in Russia, every, not just airports, but almost, it seems like every mall shopping. So you have to go through security just to even enter the airport. So when we landed in, in a, our first destination in the Yak 40, we were the only people, they said it's the only flight that operates on a given day. So the, there was not one person except a security guard in there. So yeah, that was Vologda and we flew a, a Vologda Air and, uh, and we literally had to rent a car uh, to take us to four hours away to another airport to fly the SSJ. And one other thing that's really cool, every Russian airport has an amazing gate guard airliner. I mean, they're really proud of this stuff. And so if you go, you go into like airports, like the one we were at where it's completely deserted, there's a beautiful Lucian 18 sitting out there. So it's like 
they love, they are very proud of their industry. And these planes, as much people want to make fun of them, I mean, considering the conditions they fly into it, we never felt unsafe and we never, and, and even when you're only paying $40 a ticket. That's that crazy. Was- so I'm, I'm just trying to, to think in, in 30 years from now, what a tour like this would look like because the Yak 40 can't operate forever and the Aleutians can't operate forever. So what would this tour look like in 30 years? Are, are we going to fly to to France to fly a historic A320 CEO or, or uh, a 737-800 is going to be rare? There's just so little. It doesn't even look like it doesn't even look like this SSJ is going to be flying in uh, ten right. years. Right, it's just at the rate so it's going. little variation today. Unlike back in back in the day when it was Soviet built aircraft, that it's kind of sad that in the future this, these it will not be possible to fly, do stuff like this. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, if you look to the future, I mean, maybe it'll be uh, flying things like uh, whatever the the MC twenty ones or uh, that are that are being rolled out or. It may be things like that, but it's amazing to me that like the Aleutian 96, which only went into service, that's the A340 looking wide body, that only went into service 25 years ago. And the only place operating that is in Cuba. You know, the Tupolev 204, which was, you know, again, went into service in the early 90s, which looks like it's their equivalent of a 757. There are none of those now in scheduled service. So it's bizarre that the stuff that's left is these very obscure Yak 40s, 42s, 154s. And you know, there may, and in each case, there's only like a handful still operating. So it's a really good question. I don't. I mean, let's uh, let's hope Air Corio continues to uh, represent with some of the Soviet delights. Yeah, I guess it's really the oldest of the oldest stuff, which is so durable and and can fly in any condition to any crap airport. That there just isn't an equivalent to that today. Yeah, well, they even say that like these are they they compare these aircraft to like the MD80s and the early DC8s where. They basically have almost unlimited airframe life because they're just built like tanks. Or in the case of the Yak, I mean, they're so over-engineered because of the these planes were built to land on gravel and fly in horrible conditions. So everything is really sturdy. Now, I will say that the sturdiness of these aircraft, one thing we did get to sample a little bit is how they handle weather and turbulence. They're not the smoothest riding beasts in the world. And, and you certainly can't have a conversation. I mean, they are piercingly loud, but... They have just enormous amounts of character, and it'll be sad to see them go. I mean, he's got another tour coming up here in August, and it's going to be very interesting because they're going to do a, a, a tour on a ship where it's like a cruise, and they're going to stop at different airports. And in addition to the tour I didn't do is they also did a zero-G flight on a Lucian 76, <laughs> what, which is what could be crazy. I mean, you should see the videos from this. I mean, people levitating lunch and everything, but... It's pretty cool. So they're do- there is a couple of these tours going on in August, and I'm thinking about going back because um, it's a once-lifetime experience, and these aircraft, as you just said, are uh, they're going away. I mean, really, none of the Russian airline, none of the Russian airlines, mainline airlines, fly this stuff anymore. So it's rare. Chris, we'll have to get some of the contact information for that in case anyone's interested in in, in looking at it and, and seeing if they can get going along too. We'll put that in the show notes, but. Chris Sloan, thank you so much for joining us. And it it sounds like you had a great time. And and Jason, we we we've got a few field trips to plan. It sounds like. Thank you for having me. Yeah, bring the kids. Hey, and by the way, one one last thing is you have to go. I didn't even mention the Monimo Monino. I want to make the pronunciation correct, but the, the Russian Central Air Force Museum, which is like forty miles outside of Moscow, that has one of not just military, but every commercial airline, even seeing the Tupolev 144 in person, 
but there's a lot of talk that that is also going to be a significant amount of collection is going to be cut up and the museum is going to be moved. And um, so that's another thing. If you want to see the definitive collection of Russian airliners and even military stuff, the clock seems to be ticking there too. So I would not wait. That's another thing to add to our list then. Yeah, you guys got to go. All right, off we go. And, and you got to go with Bernie. <laughs> off to JFK I go for the next Aeroflot flight. Chris Sloan, Airways Magazine Managing Editor, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to you because I feel like you're one of the people who, who gets up to some of the strangest things and always seems to have a good time. So thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks. It was a blast, guys. And uh, love the podcast. And apparently, again, you guys have a lot of fans over in Russia. I mean, seriously, when we're on the plane, the Germans, everybody's on the plane. Everybody's looking at flight radar. It's just crazy. So Awesome. It's pretty fascinating. All right, thank you. We'll take it. Das <laughs> All right. Welcome back. And Jason, I think that we should plan a field trip. I think maybe a Yak 40 would be the way to go. A Yak 40. Yeah. Yeah, that does sound good. I mean, I almost tried to join them on this trip because, I mean, it looks pretty amazing, but couldn't make it work even even though I really wanted to. So we'll have to plan something and, and eventually make it over because I think that would be a good... What if we shipped ourselves over on like a, an Antonov 124? Sure. All right. Let's make it happen. Okay. So the new thing on Flight Radar 24 that I wanted to talk about is twofold. We released two not huge updates, but kind of updates that make things just a, a little tiny bit better that I'm, that I'm happy about. And the first one is the new airport panels that we have for the web, and they'll be in the app soon. But we put in a bunch more data, especially weather data, and, and kind of make it easier to see, which I was really excited about. So that when you go to an airport, you get more information about what's happening at the airport. So if you're like, why are all these flights delayed? But then you see that there's thunderstorms and the winds blowing at 50 knots. You're like, oh, okay, that makes that makes a bit more sense. And we also added runway details, which, which I thought was pretty cool. So now you can you can learn about what types of runways and how long they are and where they are, which helps I think with a little bit uh, a little bit of plane spotting, but also you can find out which airports have water runways. Water runways? Water runways. Oh. And and I was I was interested to learn how many water runway airports with water runways also have an IATA code and there are a handful. Hmm. I do like that uh, I'm looking at JFK right now. I see for the next seven days there are 4,260 departures to 192 airports in 81 countries and the busiest route at a JFK. Can you guess? Is it, is it Washington? Mm-hmm. No, it is certainly no. not. It's LAX. LAX, there you go. There are precious few flights JFK to Washington, D.C., unfortunately, now that I know. But yeah, I'm looking at this. I see most of the airports are asphalt. Uh, two of them are, or I guess one is concrete because four left and 22 right are the same runway, aren't they? They are. Uh, they are. But the, you know, the, the more you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, and, and it links you to the uh, route map, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of tying things together, putting a little bit more information out there and making things easier to see. So, But we also added a, a photo of the actual airport, kind of a representative photo to give folks an idea of, of what things look like there. So, hopefully hopefully that's helpful. If anybody has any feedback on that, we'd love to hear it, uh, podcast at fr24.com. And, and we're always looking to, to improve the site. The other thing 
that we added this week was more surface data for major U.S. airports. So there are 35 U.S. airports that have surface, it's a composite surface movement data, and that's made available to us. And so we've integrated that into the site. And so for those airports, you'll see more data on the ground than you have in the past, especially for aircraft that are tracked with MLAT, it, it becomes a bit more, the tracking becomes a bit more precise, especially on the ground. I'm excited about that and, and I hope people are enjoying it and hopefully everyone can get use, uh, get, get some use out of it. Yeah, I agree. I always like watching the aircraft on the ground and I think we're up to like 60% of commercial aircraft with ADSB here in the US. So this will help fill in the gap quite a bit. Yeah, and I mean, with the deadline coming up, hopefully that number drops precipitously. But we'll we'll see what we see by the by the end of the year. Yeah, I, I'm definitely noticing a lot more aircraft with ADSB in the U.S. recently. Especially regional jets have been, I think, being equipped fiercely recently. Yes, yes. But there's I, still I, plenty of mainline aircraft out there from the airlines like United that simply don't have it. One day, yep. and and one day in the next seven months. Yeah, but I am looking Six at and a, a half months. A United seven three seven hundred at Laguardia taxiing out to the runway, and well, <laughs> waiting to take off because it's Laguardia, but it, <laughs> it now has proper routing and tracks all over the map where before it would not have been there at all. Yeah, so uh, so that's you know hopefully helpful for for a lot of folks that are looking to to track aircraft from gate to gate, and it'll be good. Let's close the show with a bit of a bit of sad news, but also a kind of a nice gesture that I, I thought was that was fitting. Nikki Lauda passed away this week, and for those that don't know, as far as our podcast is concerned, he's the founder of an airline, and you know managed two others uh, that he was very closely associated with, so much so that they were called Lauda, Nikki, and Lauda Motion. So, you know, when your name's on the wall or on the plane, I guess, you know, people often, you know, very closely associate you with it. But one of the main things that he did is there was that, that I think a lot of people in the industry really respect him for is there was a, a, a crash, a, a Lauda 767 crashed in Thailand in 1991. And he was really the driving force in, in a strange, you know, what we would deem kind of strange now, I think. But because he was so invested in the airline, he you know kind of drove, not necessarily the investigation of the crash, but in the aftermath, drove Boeing to make changes to the thrust reverser on the 767 so that it could not deploy in flight. And he was very instrumental in, in getting those changes made. So yesterday, he passed away on the, the 20th of May at the age of 70. And yesterday, the 21st, Lauda, the airline, conducted a special fly past in Vienna and had a, a special message in the window, which I, I thought was, you know, was rather nice. Yep. I believe with the crash, actually, he was, he put himself in the flight simulator even to try to troubleshoot what happened and, and improve, like you said, the 767. And I don't think there are many airline owners out there that would put themselves through that. Yeah, and he was a commercial pilot himself and often flew for when Nikki was, you know, flying flew those flights. I think a few times a week sometimes. So that was, you know, he was very very invested in running the airline and things like that. For those of you who have interests outside of aviation and listen to this podcast, A, good for you, but B, you also know that he was a, a three-time Formula One racing champion. So vast career in things that go fast. 
both on the ground and in the air. Yeah, I'd say most people probably know him for uh, the F one part rather than the airline part. Probably, probably. But I mean, but in, you know, he, you know, I, I guess it's when you, when you retire from Formula One racing for the first time because he retired twice and he retired for the first time. He started an airline, then came back and, and retired again and went back to running the airline. So it's you know, I guess uh, going fast was something that he liked to do. But I, I do remember, I think it was an interview with the Guardian a few years ago where he talked to you know they're, they're complete. You can't compare them because with racing you're you know going fast and and going as fast as possible and things like that but with aviation it's it's you know you have to do everything as safe as possible and and the rules are are there to speed is just a byproduct and i I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it but nikki lauda passed away this week so a bit of a remembrance to someone kind of especially influential on the low cost side of things in, in europe episode 58 what say you we're done all right off we go I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening.